Thank you all for giving to our church. Thank you for worshiping uh, with each other uh, today and hope you have a Bible. And if you do, I'd love for you to open up with me to the book of Ephesians. One last time, a part of this series we've been doing called Inheritance. We'll actually begin in chapter one today. We're going to do a quick... uh, recap of some of the important verses that we've read so far. I want to make sure that we have these ingrained into our memory. Uh, We'll do that in just a few moments, Uh, but I just want to talk about something I think we all can agree on today. You know, as great as Sundays are, and and I love Sundays, I think you love Sundays, you probably wouldn't be here uh, if you didn't uh, love Sundays and what Sundays are all about for for us, especially as believers. Um, As much as Sunday is universally agreed upon as one of the greatest days, one of the favorite days of the week, I think it's followed by one of the worst days of the week, right? Funny how that kind of works out. Uh, there's nothing morally wrong about Mondays, right? I, I, I've never heard somebody give a TED Talk about why Mondays are systemically evil, right? But uh, it just suffers from being the day after the weekend. Uh, and it's really all the weekend's fault that Mondays are so rough because we try to fit a whole week's worth of fun or recreation or chores into two days. And then Monday comes and, and we're not really ready for it. Um, and, and it's ironic, I think, it's ironic, and this is just because the world has evolved and adapted and changed over time, but it's, it's ironic that, you know, weekends used to be known for the rest they provided us, and now they're known for how exhausted they leave us. Isn't that kind of funny? Years and years ago, weekends were a time dedicated to, totally to recharging and, and kind of getting ready for another, uh, another week's worth of fun, but, but now they kind of just leave us exhausted. And it takes a couple of days in the week to get us back to full strength. You know, Sunday for centuries was the day uh, of rest, not just out of religious obligation, but because it just made sense. Um, you run all week long, you work and you study and you play, uh, and you come you come to the weekend, especially come to Sunday, uh, and, and you are longing for, you really need a recharge for both your body and your soul, but but I know, I know, and, and Court Justin, you should know, you're a child of the modern world, uh, the, the world has changed, right? Uh, weekends are for parties and socializing and events, uh, going here and seeing that, and, and I get it, and, and it doesn't, doesn't mean, though, that all that additional stuff has made us any happier. Um, it definitely hasn't made life easier on us, that's for sure. Now, now don't hear me wrong, I, nor the Bible, um, ever advocated for sun, the Sabbath day to, to sit you in place and make you miss out on all the fun. Um, the, the Sabbath day or the, the, the idea of resting w- was always for our good. Um, God, it turns out, God, in fact, knows us better than we know ourselves. And as, as sophisticated as we are and as modern as we are and as smart as we are, we will never become smarter than our Heavenly Father who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what our bodies need. He knows what our souls need more than anybody that's a wise somebody in this world. And, and it turns out we need rest. We need to be recharged, refueled, and revived on a regular basis. And, you know, I, I think we should take God's advice on this uh, More importantly, I think we should take God's word on this. Psalms 121 tells us, uh, Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleep. You and I are reminded every single night, sometimes before the night comes, maybe in the middle of the day, when our eyes get heavy, um, we are reminded every time that we begin to get tired, most every night, we are reminded that, surprise, surprise, we aren't God. Uh, and, and that the me- we, uh, we don't have the means uh, capable of running our own lives, and we should covet, and we should desire the one and only God's guidance and wisdom over every area of our life. 
And if you dig deeper in the scripture, we find out the reason why God prescribed weekends for rest, physical and spiritual rehab, if you will, was to constantly check our flesh and remind us that we can't just run, run, run and expect to be at our best. We need to chill from time to time, to put it simply. We need to rest and pause and reflect on who is in charge and how he gives us strength. And that day of rest the Old Testament commanded, it was always supposed to point us to the Savior who gives rest. Not just on a single day, but every day. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus famously says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus gives us rest. He provides our souls the peace and perspective that this world is constantly taking away and draining us of. But our bodies still need that old-fashioned, physical, literal rest. And here we are, all these years later. Again, we're so adapting to our times, and we've got the world figured out better than anybody that's ever come before us. And yet we are strung out with our tongues out, panting for some refreshment and for some relief, aren't we? The good news is, and God's word hasn't went anywhere, and he's always welcoming us back and discovering for the first time or realizing that we were wrong for a long time. He's always uh, had the best path laid out for us. And unlike your parents, unlike your preacher, unlike your teacher, God never says, I told you so. He always welcomes you back with open arms. Come to me, Jesus says. You will find rest. Now, I don't expect to be able to convince you to rearrange your life um, to, 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 to make things easier, to make things more uh, restful. Listen, I of all people know how busy the weekends are, but I'll never back down from how important what we do here is. Worship in church, uh, gathering with your brother and sister in Christ. As we talked last week in that message on unity, there's a blessing that you'll never get on your own. Satan loves to tell us that we don't need places like this and people like we see around us. He loves to tell us that we can handle it ourselves, but come on, uh, don't be fooled by that kind of spiritual arrogance or pride or blindness. Nobody's that holy. Nobody's that good. We need each other. Yes, Jesus is everywhere, but the same Jesus that says, I'm with you always commanded us to be in places like this to we might find the rest that we can't find anywhere else and find the encouragement that we can't find from anybody else. So we don't want to pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we want, right? We want to be under his entire blessing. And and I don't see anybody getting anywhere closer to God through any other path, through any other means. And as we've learned in this series, God intends on us receiving a spiritual inheritance. God has something for us that we as children have been deeded and have been gifted if we'll just trust him and if we'll just follow his word. Now, we've studied Ephesians for the last couple of weeks and, and uh, we've learned how we might experience and enjoy uh, the fullness of God, the fullness of our inheritance. And, and I just want to walk you through the first three chapters that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I want to highlight a couple of verses or a few verses that I think if you haven't committed to memory or if you haven't highlighted or if you haven't re-looked at and, and, and thought about over the last couple of weeks, you should going forward. Because we might not study these verses for a long time to come, 
but that doesn't mean you shouldn't bookmark them and reread them and make them cornerstone verses of your Christian life. So in chapter 1, verse number 3, uh, Paul introduces us to this idea of our spiritual inheritance or these blessings that God has for us that we get from being close to him, from trusting in Jesus and following him. He says, blessed be the Father, verse 3, the Father, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So that means that God hasn't held back anything from us. That God is not just divvying out a few here and there to some that randomly you know, suit him or please him. That every one of us as children of God, he's our father, the verse says, he's our father. The Lord Jesus Christ makes this available to every one of us. We've been blessed through him from heaven to earth with every spiritual blessing. And down in verse 8, he says that he is made to abound in us all wisdom and all prudence, as in the, the knowledge to know what to do and the courage to do what we've been called to do. The, the ability to focus on God and, and trust him and, and, and actually live a life uh, that can receive his blessings. That he is made to abound toward us. Literally, he has lavished upon us this inheritance. Down in verse 17 through 19, this is really our anchor passage from a few weeks ago. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that your eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints or to the saints. That's you. It's our inheritance. That we may know what is the riches of this inheritance. What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. So again, I mean, I'm not just making this out to be something that isn't. Paul is using every word in the book, right? Every adjective, every uh, uh, superlative to make us pay attention to this, isn't he? The exceeding greatness, the abundance of his power toward us, according to his mighty power. So he said, hey, this is what God has made available to you. This is your inheritance. And we talked a few weeks ago. If you realize somebody had deeded something to you, wouldn't you take advantage of it? Shouldn't you take advantage of it? Over in chapter 2, verse number 7, Paul looks forward to the generations that would come after his. And he talked about how God has been raising up people uh, through salvation. He's been saving by grace. And he says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards who? Us, who are in Christ. That's you. This means every believer. And notice he doesn't just say the, the, the small amount, but again, he continues to use words like exceeding and abundance and great and mighty, he's, he's really wanting us to pay attention to, to, the, to what God is enticing us and drawing us in with. And over in chapter 3, and this will catch us up, Paul again prays. He, and, and if you read Ephesians, it's almost like every little bit Paul stops and starts praying. And, and literally there are several prayers in the book where Paul is praying for us. Where he is praying in the, for us in the future. He prays this in chapter 3, verse 17 through 20. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Again, there's the unity part. There's the you're, you're a part of a family dichot dichotomy, dynamic. 
that with all the saints, the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there's our, our word we've been using, full, fully alive, fully united, the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to exceedingly, abundantly above all, we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So that's where the stipulation comes in. According to how we have connected, how we have pursued, and what we are receiving from God. So we've talked about the need for us to surrender on a personal level. We talked last week about the communal nature of the structure of the church, the, the relationships that we have with each other, how our cooperation and our unity is so important, uh, and how that all factors into our kingdom participation and experience. And this week, Paul is going to lean back into what's individually required of us, how all of us have to make decisions personally uh, that we might be able to enjoy the fullness of our salvation, the full measure of our inheritance. And again, it swings back to a personal conversation. Although the support and accountability we find in the church community is important to help us maintain our walk, nonetheless, each one of us must make a decision for ourselves. Ultimately, only we know how close we are to God. Only we know the status and the health of our own relationship with God. Only we can speak to how much, if any at all, of our inheritance we are walking in. We are living in. Now to bring this back to the thing that we started off talking about. A lot of us, we aren't walking much at all. A lot of us, we aren't moving too swiftly. A lot of us, uh, we're stumbling. Uh, we're, we're barely awake in our walk with God. When it comes to our faith, our spirituality, a lot of us are completely oblivious to what God has offered us and wants to give us because we've given all our energy to so much else. We've given all our time and our focus and commitment to everything but what matters most. In our Christian walk, our relationship with God is kind of like how we feel on Mondays. We're barely awake. We're hardly aware of what God wants to do and what God is intending for us. How many times have you walked out of the house on Monday morning and thought, man, I could have slept a few more hours? Maybe all day. Now, maybe this happens every day for you, and maybe we need to talk, especially if that's going on every day. We've got bigger problems. But it, it, I think everybody knows what it's like first of the week. Uh, for so many professing believers, every day feels like the day after the weekend. Some of us, we just can't even remember the last time. We even felt spiritually rested and focused, fully awake and fully aware. It's the worst. It's the worst thing stumbling in your house in the middle of the night, half asleep. You run into things, you stumble, you don't remember that you did something right. How did I do that? Walking into class on Monday or walking into work on Monday, feeling rough, it's not a good feeling. Just the same, if we're being honest, a lot of us are all too familiar with these feelings, spiritually speaking. Truth is, the entire conversation of our spiritual inheritance, it sounds foreign to a lot of us. We've never even thought about it because we've never been fully awake. We've never been fully aware as a Christian. We know enough to pray the prayers, to recite the words, to sing the chorus, but we're not walking in the fullness of our inheritance. We're drowning in the shallow end. We're slumbering through what, what could be a tremendous opportunity from the Lord. Uh, Ephesians has been all about calling us into the fullness of God, showing us how to become fully alive, how to become fully united. And lastly, Paul is going to call us to become fully awake and fully aware. 
Now, just like Monday can hit us like a ton of bricks, the words that Paul reads to us or says to us, they might sting a little. I know, I don't know about y'all, but, but I, I, have, I have PTSD from, from being a kid and being woke up by the light switch method. The light switch method is when your mom tries to wake you up gently 20 times and finally you're not going to get up, so they just flip the switch, right? And then the blinding light is just making it so painful and miserable to lay in the bed. You just got to get up because until you start waking up, that's not going to be a good feeling laying in the bed with the lights blaring down on your eyes. When, God word, when God's word meets us half awake, it can seem a bit harsh or abrupt. It, it, can, it can make us feel a little bit, eh, right? We, we don't really want to hear that. But, but time and time again, it's proven to be what we need to hear. And I think, I think what Paul has to say to us in Ephesians 5, we're going to begin in verse 8. I think it ranks up there as super critical and crucial for what our generation needs to hear today. So Paul writes to us as Christians, Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness and righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them or shine a light on them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things that are done by them in secret or in the dark. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light, as in the only thing that brings brightness and brings hope is the light of God. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophet. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So we see all throughout the Bible the contrast of light and darkness. It goes back to Genesis 1, right? God said, let there be light, and it was bright, and the darkness retreated. Spiritually speaking, God has always been the light. His word is the light. His word gives us what's good and righteous and true, as verse 9 spells out for us. Of course, the world fell away from God's light, fell into darkness, and Jesus comes as the light in the world. John's gospel tells us that Jesus is the light that comes in the darkness, And Jesus says to us in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will not be asleep, will not be unaware, will not be stumbling along, and will not be staggering along, but they will be awake. They'll have the light of life in them. So if we're following Jesus, we should be fully awake and fully aware aware of where God is leading us and where he isn't leading us. You hear that? You see the difference? That we as Christians should be aware of where God is leading and where he isn't leading, where God's blessings are found and where his blessings are not found, where we could actually lose those blessings or what might could cost us those blessings. We as God's people shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves in the wrong place. We should know and we can know. In verse 14, Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, wake up, you sleeper. Because to sleep on what God wants to do in our lives is to cost us God's blessings. To stumble around half asleep in the dark. We invite all the wrong things into our lives. We were talking about how Jesus offers us rest earlier, and this is so important. This is so important. If we we don't get this, we're not going to get anything else that God has for us. We need to trust in him. And we need to find our rest in him so that we can wake up and be in the right mood. Have you ever woke up in the wrong mood? 
Have you ever woke up next to someone who's in the wrong mood? That's not me. I've woke up in the wrong mood before, right? We need to trust in Jesus. Because listen, if, if, our, if, the, if the foundation isn't right, if the basis of our relationship isn't in the right thing, in the right nature, then we're always going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. We're always going to wake up and it's going to be a, a stumbling, staggering, kind of sleepy kind of day. The message of Christianity isn't wake up and change your life. That's religion. And a lot of churches might preach that, but that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't wake up and get better. The gospel is rest in Jesus, realize what he's done for you, and the pressure won't be on you to do better, but the strength will be in you to be new. There's a big difference in the two things, right? If you rest in yourselves, if you trust in yourselves, come on, a lot of people get yelled at by religion and they fall for it. Oh, wake up. And, and that's why they're so cranky and so ill and so hateful because they're, not, they're awake, but they're not rested. Y'all know the feeling? You're awake, but you don't want to be awake. You don't need to be. You need to be back in the bed so you can get in a better mood. The first order of business is that we turn to Jesus and find rest in him. Hebrews 4 tells us there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered into God's rest. That's the work that Jesus has done. Rested from the work that we cannot do, right? We don't do the work. We can't do the work. We're never going to earn the righteousness of God. It's a gift. Jesus has done the work. And there is a Sabbath rest that is not just a day's worth of rest, but an eternity's worth of rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered into God's rest has rested from his own works or her own works. Salvation is a gift. It's a blessing. It shouldn't make you grumpy and cranky and mean. There's a lot of grumpy and cranky and mean Christians in the world today. You know why? Because, because a, lot of, a lot of us as Christians, even though we were saved the right way, a lot of us as Christians, we've taken our faith out of Jesus and out of, we've not rested in Jesus and we've put it all on our shoulders. And we've put it all on our, the pressure on us. If your faith has made you those things, it's because your faith is in you. In your ability to please God. In your ability to be holy. In your ability to be righteous. And that's the kind of faith that makes you miserable. We're always getting mad at other people that aren't as good as us and we're bitter because God is blessing them and he should be blessing us tenfold and why, why am I behind them and they're doing the wrong thing. We, we, get it, we get like that. Christianity is better than that. It's a life of rest and peace and it's a life of the light of God. And when you wake up in the presence and power of Jesus, you'll be ready to start living as you should. So if we're rested, we can wake up. Fully awake, fully aware, verse number 15 through 17. See, then, that you walk circumspectly, and that just means walk about, or it's kind of like the, 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 the center of the circle, the, the radius that goes around it evenly. It's, it's the idea of, hey, we are tethered to a center. We are tethered to an axis that's keeping us on the right path. See that you walk circumspectly in a, in a perfect circle, as in you're tethered to the center, you're tethered to Jesus, you're connected to him, you're not you know, disconnected in any possible way. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Notice the warnings here. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time or making the most use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
if you're wide awake, if you're fully aware, the question becomes, am I walking in God's wisdom? Am I fully awake to his will? Am I fully aware of what's at risk? I'm awake to what he's doing, what he's up to in the world, where he wants me to go, where his blessings are found, and I'm aware of the risk of not following him, of being disconnected from him, of being half asleep at the wheel. I'm aware of the risk. Notice in these verses, there's a clear warning in the language that Paul uses. Walk carefully, not as unwise. Do not be foolish. And, and, and the, the thing that those things center around, circle around, is this reminder that days are evil. Now again, we talked about this. Days don't have a morality. So it's not that there's something systemically wrong with the day. What Paul means by the days are evil, I think it's this. The days can be deceptive. The days will fool us into thinking and feeling like we're okay doing it our way. Because sometimes you get through a Monday, half asleep, right? Half awake, whatever side of the coin you want to use. We get through a Monday and we're, we, we, we make it to the end of the day and we think, well, that wasn't so bad. Yeah, I was mean and ill and I wasn't really a good person to be around, but I made it to the end, so that means I can do it again next week, right? And, and maybe there's something every day that goes on with you, right? Do you realize, you know what? I, yeah, I wasn't aware of what God was doing. I wasn't aware of the bigger picture, but I made it through. So maybe I'll just do that again. And the day confirms to you, yeah, you don't got time to make room for something else. You don't got time to do something different next time. You got to just keep doing it because you're in this grind. You're in this cycle. And hey, you made it. I guess I can pull this off. Have you ever found yourself in that cycle, that, that rut? And you tell yourself, you know what? I guess I can just keep doing this. The days will convince us it's okay to be too busy for God. The days will convince us that that rhythm, that routine you're in, it just can't be broken. The days will, will, will lull you into that rhythm. The days will tempt you to make more and more excuses against what God wants and for what you or someone else wants. The days are not neutral. The days are evil. The days are deceptive. And here's what else is a big deal. The days are short. The days are fragile. Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, praises, teaches us to teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. So when we spend our days on the wrong things, when we don't walk in wisdom, we end up giving up days upon days that we won't ever get back. Y'all know how that works. You know why Paul is talking about this on the heels of telling us about our inheritance and what God wants to do in our lives and how it's in store for us? It's because as much as God is for us, as much as God is for us and wants to bless us, there is an enemy. There is an evil presence in this world, in this universe, that wants to curse us, that wants to take the blessings of God away from us and destroy us. And nobody likes talking about this, but it's the reality we live in. Jesus himself, the same man that said, come to me, I'll give you rest, said there's a thief who wants to steal and kill and destroy your life. I have come to give you life and you might have it abundantly, but you must be aware there is an enemy. There is a thief and his agenda is to steal from you what God has for you, to take away, to destroy the dream that God puts in your heart. The enemy wants to prevent us from obtaining all that God has in store for us. He wants to stunt our growth as a believer. He works against everything that God is trying to do. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, 
Which is exactly what this text is telling us to be. If we're not careful, we will forfeit our inheritance for something inferior in every way. We cannot face any given day without being intensely, intensely aware and fully awake. We've all driven in a state that we shouldn't be driving. Sleepy, distracted. That's not a good place to be on the highway, but that's an even worse place to be in our spiritual lives. You may, you may can stumble into work tomorrow, strung out and zoned out, but you cannot afford to go blindly into any day without a deep connection and concentration on God's will for your life, God's plans for every aspect of your life, God's intentions for your life. Because the risk, the risk isn't just that you'll miss out, the risk is that you'll cash out. As in you'll spend your life on all the wrong things in all the wrong places. And let me just say this. The story of the prodigal son, well, how did it start? He went to his father and said, Father, you're not dying fast enough. Can I go ahead and have my inheritance now? Now, that's a crude way to put it. That's the story. Dad, I wish you were gone so I could have my inheritance. Can I have it now? And the goodness of his father, he gave it to him. And, and we know the story. God welcomes him back. But guess what he didn't get back? All the stuff he squandered. Right? The guy, got, the guy was forgiven. The guy was welcomed back in. The guy was accepted. Hey, that, that's a good story. But those things that he took and wasted, those things that he missed out on, he'll never get back. And if we want abundant life, then we've known that we, we can't afford to cash out on those things. And here, here's, I thought about this for a long time and I prayed about this and this is really the best way I can put this for us. Today's evil, today's evil is always trying to prevent us from arriving at tomorrow's blessing and eternity's reward. Think about this. Y'all, we all have goals. We all want to be somewhere tomorrow, next week, next year, next month, in the future. We all have goals for our lives. But every day there's something in front of us that's trying to prevent us from get, reaching that goal. There's, every day there's something that's trying to sidetrack us and detour us and keep us from getting to that place, that place that we want to be so badly. The place that we've worked hard to be, that we've planned hard to get to, that we've dreamed of. Today's evil is always trying to prevent us from getting Tomorrow's blessing, eternity's reward. Our inheritance as believers is absolutely accessible and available, but it's not guaranteed. As in, it can be squandered, it can be turned down. All of this in Ephesians 5 is really just setting us up for what Paul goes on to say over in chapter 6. If you flip over there, verses 10 through 13, Paul continues on this subject of being able to overcome the days that are evil, the evil one that works in these days. Verse 10 through 13, he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So we hear this language of the strength that God gives us, the power that comes from Jesus. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. And I want you to underline these next three word, four words, in the heavenly places. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. We just learned the days are evil. The days are deceptive. Every day is an evil day if you look at it through Paul's lens. And he's not saying that to discourage you. He's just saying this to make us aware of what we're up against. 
that we might, having done all, to stand. So breaking this down, verse 10, wisdom is only half of it. We need the strength and the power of God to give us the victory over the enemy. And verse 11 tells us the enemy absolutely, the enemy absolutely schemes to distract us and defeat us. On a personal level, he knows our weaknesses. And he works to discourage and wound and enslave us. He knows his strings to pull in your private life. He knows what brings you down mentally. He knows what brings you down in your marriage, in your relationships. He knows what destroys the day at work. He knows your weaknesses. He knows. And he is working to perfect the schemes to distract you and defeat you, to discourage you and to wound you and enslave you into a place that you think you cannot overcome. He knows what strings to pull. He knows how to cause you to grow weary and give up. His forces are in the very places that God positions you. And that's what verse 12 is important to notice. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these, uh, the, 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 the best way to translate it is these demonic forces or the, the forces of the enemy, the, the, the schemes of the devil. And, and that just means that the devil uses the fallen nature of this world to his advantage. You don't got to be afraid of a demon around every bush. I'm not trying to make you paranoid. But the reality is, is that we live in a world that is fallen, right? That's not as it should be, loved by God nonetheless, but a world that isn't clicking like it should, that isn't always firing on all the cylinders like it should be, like it was meant to be. That includes me, you, that includes everything around us, right? And, and notice it says that these forces are in the heavenly places. Now, here's what that means. Here's, what, here's how I think the best way for us to understand this. That Satan is at work in the very places that God has placed you and that God intends to bless you. Satan is at work specifically in the areas of your life that are ordained by God and intended for God's activity. That means your marriage. That means your church. That means the things you've been working hard for and praying hard for and that you finally get a hold of, whether it's your home, your life, your, your work life, whatever, the areas of your life that have been consecrated by God, that's the areas in which we are most vulnerable. Because these spiritual forces, these wicked forces are in the heavenly places. They're in the places that God himself has ordained. That means we are vulnerable. If we are not fully aware and fully awake, if we are not prepared for whatever the battle is. Now, verse 13, it says the evil day. I mean, we learned that could be any day. That is any, every day. It's any moment that we give, that we let our guard down. It's any moment where we're practically sleepwalking. But again, this all goes back to our relationship with Jesus. If we're resting in him, we are positioned at any given moment to wake up and be in full strength and resist the devil and persist in God's will. We all know the story that Jesus himself was tempted in the wilderness, right? Now, it was never a question that he was going to overcome that, that temptation. He walked into the desert that day knowing it was going to be a little bit of a battle, but hey, he wasn't going to fall. He wasn't going to fail. The devil knew that he wasn't going to give in, but it was set up that way for two reasons. Jesus was tempted to show us that temptation is real, but victory is possible. You see that? Jesus was tempted to show us that who are we fooling to say that we're never tempted? Who are we to say, oh, I never have a bad day. I'm never, I'm never tempted. To, I'm never discouraged. I'm never distracted. I'm never tested. 
Come on. I mean, nobody, back to the holy thing. Nobody's that holy. Come on, we, don't, we can cut that out. Nobody's that bulletproof. Nobody's that sanctimonious. Come on, let's, let's quit pretending as if, oh, well, whew, every day is just a piece of cake. It's not real, right? It's not true. Temptation is real. But victory is possible. Now, you know the story. Jesus experienced three kinds of temptation. And we'll run through these quickly. The temptations he experienced were with counterfeits, shortcuts, and manipulations. The first temptation was Jesus was hungry. And Satan said, you know, you could ask, you could command, I know who you are, you're God in flesh. You could command those stones to be bread. And listen, Jesus, nobody will ever know that that wasn't real bread. Church, there are things in your life that nobody will ever know that you took a counterfeit option. There are scenarios in your life, in your relationships, in your, from, from your mind to your flesh that nobody will ever know that you took a counterfeit option. But you know who will never forget? You. That if you settle for counterfeit, if you settle for a counterfeit version of God's will, something that was never part of God's will for you, that may look similar to God's will, that may be adjacent to God's will, but let's not kid ourselves, it's not God's will. And we can rationalize it. We can tell, oh, well, God will understand. And God loves you. He, God always understands. He knows what you are. He knows what we are. We're sinners, right? That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it okay, right? Oh, we twist it around and we say, well, God understands. God knows what I'm going through. Of course God knows what you're going through. That's why he's written this to you, right? You can take a counterfeit if you want to, but everybody may be convinced, but you'll never forget Satan took Jesus up to a high place and he said, hey, okay, Jesus, I know what you're after. You're after that throne above all thrones. But if you bow down to me, we'll bypass the cross. We'll bypass the pain, the suffering, the, the torment. And yeah, you won't save the world, but you'll still have the throne. Now, that was never going to be a viable option for Jesus. But come on, don't you see the idea that Satan offers us shortcuts? Oh, we'll go buy all that stuff that might be difficult and hard. Oh, you don't have to stay in your relationship. You don't have to stay at that church. You don't have to stay in that. You don't have to work through that. You can, you can find somebody else. You can find someone else. You can do something better. Come on, we're all tempted to take shortcuts. And yeah, we might find a greener pasture, but you'll always know, we'll always know that that wasn't God's path for us. And some part of us will never recover from that. And then he took Jesus to the temple and he said, okay, Jesus, you want all these people to love you? If you throw yourself off this temple tower, at the last minute, the angels will, will catch you and everybody will be ooh and aahing at you and say, wow, look at the power of God. So Jesus, why don't you manipulate God to do something for you? Why don't you force his hand to catch you when you're falling? In summary, God's best for us cannot be matched by counterfeits. His destination for our lives cannot be arrived at through shortcuts. His hand over us cannot be forced through manipulation. We know that, don't we? The Bible says that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time would come. Here in Ephesians 6, we get a third description of how we can be prepared for every battle with the enemy, no matter how evil the day is, all of this hinges on how awake we are, how aware we are, how uh, our sobriety as believers. And this isn't just something Ephesians preaches. All throughout the Bible, Jesus himself said in Luke 21, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and good cares of this life. And that day, what day? Any day. 
The evil day, which is every day. That day come upon you like a trap. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, as in, hey, it's going to happen. This world is not going to be an evil one until Jesus redeems it, and one day you'll stand before the Son of Man. But until that day happens, you've got to be awake. You've got to be aware. You've got to be equipped for this. Romans 13, Paul says, Besides this you know, the time has come, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for the salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And here in front of us, Ephesians zooms in and profiles that armor, that armor of light. And we're not going to go into detail on this, but I do want to read this in closing. And we've heard this preached so many times from our childhood up. But listen as Paul details this armor that we can take on spiritually. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul wrote this from prison, yet he was more prepared and more awake to the kingdom's cause than most who are free. Physically, he was in chains, but spiritually, he was battle-ready, which tells me, no matter our circumstances, we can adorn ourselves with the armor of God and stand strong in every evil day. No matter the temptation, no matter the frustrations we face, no matter the tests or the trials or the distractions... If we have Christ's righteousness protecting our hearts, we won't become prideful. We won't have lapses in our moral judgment because his righteousness will guide us and guard us. If our feet are grounded in his peace, we won't be shaken or discouraged or overwhelmed when circumstances go awry, when problems persist. If we have the field of faith, we can press through the barrages of darts that are meant to bring doubt and fear and anxiety. If we have the helmet of salvation, our minds are protected, our heads won't believe the lies of this world. If we have the sword of the Spirit, God's Word will guide us and will help us combat any alternative to God's truth and His will for our life. Most of all, through prayer, which is often a forgotten part of the armor, Praying always, verse 18, through prayer, we can stay awake, stay aware, stay alert, and be bold. You never have to have an all day again. And you're going to, I get it. But it doesn't keep it from being an ideal goalpost. You never have to have an all day again if you have the armor on, if you are resting in Christ and awake in his life. Temptations and tests never have to defeat you again. The evil days never have to detour your walk with God again. Even if there are no neutral days, even if we always must be battle ready, that kind of alertness, that kind of watchfulness, that kind of vigilance will always remind us and ensure us that yes, the days may be evil, but we were made for these days. You see that? 
we groan and we moan and we complain. The days are evil. The world is evil. That's not going to get any better until the end comes. And it's not going to come until we allow God to be in control. And part of God being in control is that we realize we were made for these days. The Bible doesn't say the days are evil for us to pull our hair out and say, oh no. The Bible says the days are evil that we might be prepared to live in these days for His glory. You were made for these days. And the days were made for you. The evil of our generation, God had you in mind when He put you here. And when He put everything in order like it is. We arrive at our inheritance, our blessings for every day. We don't have to, be, to have to forfeit them or watch them wash away. We can take hold of the fullness of God if, if, if we stay awake, if we remain alert, if we stay vigilant. And here's the good news. Even if we stumble and we will, even if we fall for temptation, even if frustration gets the best of us, even if we're distracted, even if we're discouraged, even if the test gets too heavy, Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. God always has our backs. Even when we aren't fully aware. Even when we aren't fully awake. So yeah, this message is all about being fully awake and being fully aware and we should and we shouldn't be asleep at the wheel and the Bible commands us to wake up, O sleeper, and be alive in the light of God. But the reality of it is that isn't most of our scenarios, that isn't most of us a lot of the time. And the good news is, the grace is, the mercy is that God has our back. The goodness and mercy of God follows you all the days of your life so that there never has to be an excuse for us to not surrender to God's help and rest in his strength and see the days turned around for good. That's why David could say, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord, the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Because he says, hey, even when I'm not always got my eyes on the Lord, God's always got my back. Earlier in that psalm, he talks about in the presence of our enemies, God anoints us with oil. So yes, Satan knows your weaknesses, but God loves you, and God pursues you, and God strengthens you. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Satan knows your weaknesses, and he knows what buttons to push. He knows how to get you in the bad place that you often find yourself in. He knows how to beat you down. Satan knows that, and he'll always know that. But greater than him is the God who loves you and pursues you and strengthens you. Amen. The God who has your back. Yes, Satan may put stumbling blocks in front of you. But God has your back, and God is there to pick you up when you fall. And no matter what you make, your greatest of failures your most vulnerable and your most disappointing moment of your life that you may have saw coming and you could have prevented and you should have never found yourself there. But let's say you did, and many of us do. God says to us, my mercy and my goodness are enough to raise you back up and to give you a better day tomorrow. And isn't that all we can ask for? Satan knows our weaknesses, but God loves us and God strengthens us. He will always pursue us. The church, I, I don't know about you, but I think all of us can use some rest. 
All of us need to be rested in Christ, to be recharged through Christ and through the righteousness that he gives, through this armor that only he equips. And if we are rested in him, we can wake up fully and be ready for whatever battle. And hey, all all of us are in battles. Everybody is in a battle of some kind. Of the mind, of the flesh, everything in between. At home, at work, somewhere in between. All of us are in battles. All of us face battles and they won't go away. The days are evil, but guess what? You were made for these days and God has your back. There's nothing better to find relief from and grace from than that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the relief that you give us. Thank you so much for the grace that you offer us. Thank you, Lord, for you never abandon and you never forsake us. Lord, we can run in confidence. We can shout with joy no matter what we may feel overcoming us and coming against us in this world. No matter how great the enemy's weapons are that are forged against us, they will not prosper and they will not win. Yes, the temptation is real, but you, our Savior, uh, are more powerful. And yes, victory is possible. Father, I pray you might would move through this room today and if somebody would like to be honest and would be, would be willing to, to raise their hand or willing to bring their self to this altar and just confess that they're not fully awake, they're not fully aware, they're asleep at the wheel. They've, given, they've, they've, they've laid down when it comes to uh, following you and pursuing you and, and, and they're willing to ask for some help. And the good news is you've never forsaken them. The good news is you've always followed and pursued them and you're here to lift them up. And Lord, you want to equip us for the work, for the battle against the enemy. You want to prepare us for what may be coming against us. We pray that, I pray that the people in this house today would just surrender to you and allow you to open their eyes, open their hearts, and to give them that watchfulness and that alertness that they may be able to stand in the evil day. And they may be able to be bold and confident and know that they were made for these days. And that the greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You're always with us. You'll never leave us. Remind us today through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.